I'm Tavi Desira, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavi Desira Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both in-person and virtual settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. Now, if you've been enjoying my podcast and the insights and tools I've been sharing on how you can improve your leadership craft and you're interested in having me expand on them with your team and organization, I'd like to invite you to check out my speaking page on our website at tavinasir.com to learn about some of the topics I can discuss at your upcoming event. And now I'd like to introduce my guest for this episode, Alan Adamson. Alan is an expert in all disciplines of branding. Over the course of his career, Alan has worked as a marketing executive at Unilever, held senior management positions at renowned advertising firms, and now serves as an adjunct professor and frequent guest lecturer at New York University's Stern School of Business. In addition to writing for Forbes, Alan has written four books, and I've invited him to join me on my show to talk about his latest one, Seeing the How, Achieving Market Advantage by Transforming the Stuff We Do, Not the Stuff We Buy and what it reveals about how to approach the customer experience as a competitive advantage. Hi, Alan. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Alan, before we delve into the ideas you share in your book, I have to take a moment here to tell you how much I enjoyed reading the various mentions to Seinfeld in your book. But if you think about it, there's quite a few instances in that show where we see Kramer trying to come up with some new product or experience that he thinks people will get behind. But in any case, I realize that you must be a mutual fan of this show, so I knew we were going to have a great conversation here. Well, I'll try not to pepper too many into the conversation. (laughs) So as you describe early in your book, Alan, seeing the how is about understanding the eight lenses that we need to wear to better understand how to connect and provide some solution for the target audience you want to cater to. But before we explore those different lenses, I'd like to talk about this idea of experience innovation, where we focus more on the experience people have going through the process of buying and using our product or service. So could you describe what experience innovation is and how do we move past our own assumptions and make ourselves open to understanding and discovering these new paths to disrupt and innovate what we offer to our customers? Uh, thanks for that. It was a really good opening question. So it, I started my career uh, in consumer packaged goods. I uh, spent a lot of time at Unilever. And back in those days, if you invented a better product, a better mousetrap, you had a better mousetrap and you had it for a little bit of time. You could build a brand behind it. Dove is a great example. It was, in fact, better for your skin uh, you know, than soap and better for your hair. Um, and they had years to tell that story. But more and more today, when I work with clients, um, product differences are vaporizing. And if you have a better mousetrap on Monday, there's a good chance you won't have a better mousetrap on Wednesday when your competitor matches or exceeds it. So the whole notion of being completely focused on, I've got a better, uh, how do I tell the story of my product or my service and get somebody to buy it? you know, it's not working as well as it used to because we live in a sea of sameness. So as part of that, I began to examine how are, you know, a nice chunk of my time uh, is spent down at the Stern Business School. Uh, and I coach entrepreneurial teams 
um, on how to uh, position their offer, go to market, brand themselves, etc. And I started to notice over the years that more and more of these teams were not inventing better mousetraps. They were inventing different ways to do things. They were adding experiences to existing behaviors or changing behaviors, getting you to actually not just go through your routine like a um, you know, a robot and go to the store, go to the shelf, pick it up. But, you know, they were just disrupting how you do things and building experiences around their product or service that provided actually more differentiation in a relevant way uh, than just having four blades versus three blades on the razor. So to me, experience is not just uh, you know, having uh, a, a, a cool experience at the Nike store or at Starbucks, and somebody writes your name on the coffee cup. It is more about how do they, how do, how do you understand my life, and can you get make, of course, make my life easier, um, but make it different. And I'm prepared to change my behavior. Finally, uh, so don't be scared of telling me that, you know, there's a different way to do something. Yeah, and I like this description you shared about the evolution of how the people, the different entrepreneurs you're working with, the, how their perspective is changing, because it reflects one of the points you share in this chapter of your book that I really gravitated towards, which is that we have to change the questions we ask people, that we're not simply asking them what do they want, but instead we're opening ourselves to asking questions that reveal why people do what they do, what motivates them, or what's the pain point that leads them in that direction. Exactly. So as a brand manager back in the day at Unilever, you know, I was very focused, how do I get someone to buy this product? And I was looking at the product and we would change the fragrance. But marketers need to be, yes, if you, you need to have good execution on your service or product or your offer. But you should be spending more time looking at your customer, not just asking what you want, because they can't tell you. I'm a, I'm a believer in that. They can't see around corners. They can tell you what they think they want. So watching their behavior and you know, I'm, I'm going to serve up one just uh, to uh, you know, uh, tie back to the beginning. There, there was a line um, in, as part of Seinfeld's humor that you, he was a great observer of funny things people do. You ever wonder why people, you know, buy a muffin and, you know, only eat the top um, or, or whatever the instance is. And so marketers need to be a little bit more like that and look at it. It's strange that. You know, when you're, people in the market, they, they, they shop this way and they don't put things. You know, start looking at the customer more than you're looking at your inside the company at the conference room table with your product or service offer in the center and all talking about it. So with this understanding of what experience innovation is, let's explore these eight lenses you describe in your book, starting with the first one, focus in and drill down. And I have to tell you, as I was reading about this particular lens where we find that one thing we do really well and focus on just doing that, it reminded me of this line Charles Winchester tells Hawkeye and MASH the first time they meet. And he says, I do one thing at a time, I do it very well, and then I move on. And that's exactly what I thought when I was reading about this lens. Now, over the past few years, though, we've seen many examples of software companies creating an app that offers this unique experience or ability. And then as they get more popular, the company behind them starts adding all these other features in order to compete with other apps that are in their periphery. But it seems this is the wrong approach. So could you elaborate on this lens and why having a singular focus on that one thing you do well is the key to experience innovation? Um, well, a couple of things. One, 
is that lots of people have the same idea at the same time. To think you have a unique piece of app, a new unique app or a unique software solution or a unique better tasting lemonade, whatever it is, um, uh, lots of people are going to have the same idea. I should offer this sort of, solve this sort of problems, brand solve problems, products, companies, services solve problems. Um, but the winner in the category is not the one that has the idea first, uh, but the one that executes the best. And um, and everyone knows 101 is that great execution, as in MASH, <laughs> takes <laughs> focus. If you can, if you try to do five things, you will likely do five things averagely. And the other fuel of this problem is that no one shares average on social media. No one says, I bought this product and it worked. <laughs> um, no one, people only share extraordinarily good or extraordinarily bad. So if you cannot really execute brilliantly in a way that will wow somebody, you're invisible today. So with that in mind, I began to look at lots of categories that have changed, you know, uh, not because they've said, oh, and it does this too. And you know, I mean, the classic one from way back when, when people remember what this was, was the, uh, I guess, 10 years ago, whatever, yeah, the, the DVR, right? You know, it, it could almost, you know, toast your toast and make you coffee. At the, but to, to get it to work, the, the DVR came with a 25-page uh, instruction book. So, um, so less is more, simple is better. Uh, and th there are many, many examples. The classic one was the way you used to get your eyeglasses and contacts. You would go to a store, uh, an op optical store. And, and then many, many years ago, someone said, gee, you know, maybe we should just offer one part of that experience. Maybe if we just offer the most selection of contact lenses and the best prices, and we do it in a way that's super easy, that you, the minute you run out, you get a you know, pick up the phone or double click on something. And so 1-800-CONTACTS, it wasn't like they invented better contacts or whatnot. There were many other ways to get contacts, but um, they started a, a smarter, more focused way into it. Uh, another more recent one I, I've got intrigued with, when consumers need to buy complicated things, sometimes it's really hard if you're comparing cars, especially expensive things, you know, refrigerators, and for years, if you wanted an objective opinion, there was one major competitor, the offer of that, and it was an organization called Consumer Reports. And they would analyze all the cars in the hatchback, in the station wagon or the SUV category. And they, you know, they did a report. But you looked at this report, and it was like a, you know, a McKinsey report. Well, if you want a car that goes fast, this one has a full circle. If you want a car that has better gas mileage, this one has a full circle. If you want a car that starts on Tuesday, this... And so you look at this thing and you say, well, I, I don't, you know, I, I, there's 14 Harvey balls and three solids. Do I want three gold stars? And it, it became impossible to use. And a couple of years back, uh, a startup uh, called Wirecutter said, now, if you need headphones and you want them for running, these are the ones, double click here. If you want headphones for a plane, for noise, these are the ones. If you want to give headphones to your kids and you don't want to spend a lot, so they just cut to the chase and said, here's your problem. Here's what you buy, double click, as opposed to evaluating all the ones in the category against 12 different dimensions. They focused in and said, what's really important in recommendations today is people don't have time to sort it out. They just want a strong point of view. And recently, uh, the New York Times bought Wirecutter. So for people that believe 
the New York Times is a credible source of information, the combination of Wirecutter and the New York Times comes together in a powerful way. You know, this is a great example you shared just now, because I think it sets us up to talk about the next lens, which is customize and make it personal, where we take what we do well and then craft it to meet the unique expectations of our customers so they feel like it was made especially for them or at least for people like them. And again, this would seem to counter the notion that we have to diversify to gain greater market share, because if we customize and personalize our offerings, it means we're catering to a specific niche. But that's not what we're doing here, is it? Yeah, and it's been around for a long time. You've been able to, but tailoring and customizes often mean that I'm gonna. I know that uh, Bob, uh, you know, is interested in sugar cereals, and I'm gonna target him with my sugar cereal. It was, but it wasn't about changing the offer to really solve a problem for an individual. Um, and once you solve a problem and it becomes yours, like you know, in the book I talk about back in the day when um, you you needed a, a shirt and perhaps a tie, um, oftentimes when I was traveling globally, I would have a shirt made uh, in China, in Hong Kong. And it was not that much more expensive. It was maybe 10, maybe 20% more expensive than when you would get at a department store. But once you had it made, you know, it, it 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 sat on a different shelf in your head. You you were not going to toss you 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 or I held on to that longer because it was made for me. Mm. And think about that 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 lens as you think about how you talk to customers. There are you know lots of new uh, digital salespeople that instead of sending you an email, you know, will send you a, a short video and say, "Hey, Debbie, you know, uh, I know a little bit about uh, your business and." Here's an idea I have for you and send you that. So everything can be tailorized, um, but don't look at it as tailorized to target and be better customers uh, for your existing service. But look at that, how you might tailor your existing service to make it more special for your customers, for that customer who's looking for that benefit. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I just think, for example, I mean, given the context of the, the name of the show here. I think of a lot of the coffee shops now, you know, in the past you would go and you pretty much just had a choice. Do you want coffee with milk or sugar? And that was pretty much the only options you had. Now you can customize your coffee based on what type of milk you want to have in it, whether you want sugar, do you want to add some type of syrup to it? I mean, the options you have to customize your drink now when you go to a coffee shop are endless compared to before, but the original product is still the same. So you can still have five different people waiting in line to order coffee and each one will get a custom drink that's specified to what their taste profile is, even though the actual origin or the original source product is the same. Exactly. And, and again, you know, I encourage readers and people we work with to zoom out because Yes, you can talk about do you want oat milk or coconut milk? Uh, I go to a little coffee shop and sometimes I drive uh, to a meeting and they know that if I'm driving, they give me a large cup, but they give me a medium coffee in it. So they know when I put it in my coffee cup holder, when I get out of the car, I'm not wearing coffee because, you know, <laughs> one bump and it's all over. But that's this customization thing, too. They know me that it's in the car. They know if it's filled to the top and you're holding one wheel with a steering wheel, you're going to be wearing it. And so don't just think about the product. How can I serve this experience up that will fit into my customers' lives better? So, Alan, I'm excited to talk to you about the next lens, which is joining forces, where we take what we learned from employing the first lens that helps us identify what is that one thing we do really well 
And here we find someone who does something different really well, and we partner together to create an even better experience for our respective customer base. Now, my company has a few partnerships with other companies, and when I was reading your book, I realized this was the lens we were both using of looking at how we could take what we both do really well and combine our strengths to offer something of even greater value to our customers. And I love this particular lens because for me at least, it exudes that notion of having an abundance mindset, of finding these opportunities to partner and collaborate to further growth and success for both parties. And I'd love it if you could share here how we go about identifying such opportunities and how we figure out what organization would be a great one for us to join forces with. Yeah, so part of this is tied to the first point, which is if you try to do everything in your business by yourself, you'll do your core business really well. But if it comes time to serving them coffee, maybe not so well. (laughs) (laughs) And and the same is true in business. You know, companies need to stay focused on what they can really do well, but oftentimes expanding it and changing it uh, to to create a different quote unquote experience uh, will make both it, it, the classic one plus one equal three. Um, and this is not you know buy peanut butter and get you know jelly free type. There've always been those pr- cross promotions. I'm not talking about putting things together like peanut butter and jelly. I'm talking about looking at your business and say what are my equities and how could I bring those equities to life in a different world. So many, many years ago, um, you know, I was working with the uh, National Geographic and you know, they, they've been struggling to stay relevant. Um, if you go into um, people that are of a certain age's basement, you will find old magazines with yellow borders and they would cover you know, uh, safaris or chimpanzees or glaciers. And it was interesting and you would learn something. But that world, of course, is long gone. And they tried to get in, they did get into television, but there's some tough competition. And many years ago, they hooked up with a very niche cruise line, smaller boats called Lindblad uh, Cruises, Lindblad, Lindblad uh, Travels. And they rebranded it as National Geographic Adventures. And so when you go on this adventure, not only uh, are there people on board that know a lot about the penguins you're looking at or the sea turtles or the glaciers? And so it's educational. You get a, a really National Geographic type of expert. But if you're taking pictures, whether it's on an iPhone or an old-fashioned camera, they will tell you how to get the, you know, the picture of the uh, penguin smiling perfectly. They, you know, so you all of a sudden, you're not just reading a magazine or watching a TV show you're in the magazine or in the TV show. So it was a great example of putting two together. And there are lots of them in the marketplace uh, that are figuring that out. Um, so not so much for promotion, but you know, how could you take your core offer and bring it to life in a different experience dimension way and find a partner that can do it for you as opposed to you saying, doing what you know big companies used to do, oh, we'll just add it on. Uh, Because the stronger the focus, the stronger the brand, the stronger the execution. Yeah, and I think this lens also becomes that that reassuring one that if we go back to the first one where, you know, we're drilling down and focusing only on that one thing we do really well, again, this goes counter to what a lot of companies are thinking they have to do, which is that 
you know, they have to be that all-in-one stop for their customers, that they got to corner the market, if you will. And this helps them recognize that, no, what you have to do instead is by developing that one thing you do exceptionally well, where you create real value and you can customize it to the needs of your customers, you can then find that partner out there who can complement what you do and thereby create even greater value for both customers. I mean, a classic example is also a little bit older, but, you know, Best Buy, like many electronics, we just used to sell lots of brands and you would rely on that salesperson to tell you the difference between brand A and brand B. And, you know, they really didn't often know because they were in a category that was complicated, whether it's music or sound or television or uh, and and so all of a sudden they realized, well, gee, why don't I bring those brands to life. And so there's a Microsoft section, there's an Apple section of the store where you can actually speak to a Microsoft person or a Sonos expert or a, uh, an Apple person and have the benefit of seeing them all in one, uh, like a trade show, but knowing that when the person in the Microsoft booth is talking to you about their product, they actually might know something about it and will be a good advisor. So again, you know, they could have like for years, every electronic store just piled all the products on the shelf and said, come to this store and we got everything. But Best Buy said, gee, what happens if I bring the two worlds together and partner with these companies to create an experience inside my store that if people want to buy noise-canceling headphones, there's somebody there from Bose who knows how to talk about the cats. Okay, Alan, so the next lens is See Like a Concierge, which really taps into this notion of experience innovation because you're looking to make your customer's experience memorable and even extraordinary, which even applies when things don't go right. So what are some things we need to consider to be able to see like a concierge? Well, everyone says when you talk to any company, oh, we're very we're very customer-centric. We know, it, right. you know we're very responsive to our consumers. But to me, most of it is like, I mean, they can answer a question, but they're not helping me figure out what question should I have asked. Or am I asking the right question? So the old the example I use is is see like a concierge. And if you go to a you know some hotels and you ask them for a you know what's a good place for lunch nearby, you know, they will say, all right, let me just open open table or whatever app. And here's a you know Chinese restaurant around there. It's got three stars. And you know you could have done that yourself. Um, and they're being helpful. They're answering the question, but. Yeah, at a higher end hotel, sometimes really well-trained concierges can say, well, it looks like you're really stressed out. Your kids are screaming at you. You probably need a restaurant that has fast service. You probably need a place where you can be in the corner and if the kids are going crazy, you're not going to do and, and based on that, I think you should go here. So in other words, they're looking at you, seeing something about you, observing you, and then offering a solution that factors in um, who you are and what might be right for you, not just you ask for a restaurant and here's the ones in three miles, which one do you want to go to? So that applies to almost every category. I'll give you a crazy example. I went to visit my uh, daughter in university a couple of years back and uh, you know her sorority house looked like a shipping and receiving dock from a, for a large logistical company because every kid was getting two or three amazon boxes or target boxes or a day and they were piling up and i w walked around and said well how do you return things and they go well you know no one here has a printer 
<laughs> uh, no one here, you know, even knows what a post office is. Uh, you can't half of them can't figure out is it is USP in this, in this country is that US UPS or the, is that the post office? And so what seems average, you know, a no brainer for most people is a real challenge. So this a, a startup company uh, wanted to provide concierge concierge services, not so much for um, for college kids, although they needed it there. Uh, was for heavy shoppers uh, who had you know, 10, 12 boxes arriving a day and couldn't figure out it was too much. So they pick everything up. You leave it on your, you leave all the 10 boxes half open or used. They they repack it. They ship it back and they email you saying, here are the 10 things we picked up this week. These five have been refunded. These two are still outstanding. And, you know, they so everyone says, oh, it's easy. Just do it yourself. And it's easy unless you have a, you know, a lack of uh, knowledge of what a post office is, or you're getting too much of this and you're busy juggling kids' uh, work and many, many other things. So one question I had, Alan, while I was reading this was, if we go back to the first lens, where our goal here is to focus on that one thing we do really well, how do we balance that if we're then trying to make sure that we're meeting these different needs that our customers might have, which are not necessarily around the product or service that we offer. It's more in the periphery. Like the example you gave of going to the hotel and we're kind of curious about finding some good places to go eat that maybe the hotel could provide some ideas. So how do people balance knowing when there are things that they should focus on, that this is what we do really well, and what are the areas that they should also expand and broaden their understanding and awareness to improve the customer experience they're providing. Yeah, and so that's a really great point. Because um, many companies, when they try to get into a higher level of seeing like a concierge or customer service, and they're in an engineering company and they're used to making tubes of toothpaste or widgets, and then they try to have people interface with customers, they find out that it takes a different type of person to be the frontline customer person. It takes a different skill set and maybe they don't have a culture to do that. So there are companies that provide, you can outsource that, uh, which is another example of um, partnership because if you don't have the skill set, I mean, I, I don't pick on Amazon, but trying to get, it, 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 once you get a hold of uh, uh, Amazon human being, they're actually very helpful, but of course they make it really hard to find that person. And, um, you know, they are, they're set up, but they're all off scripts. It just feels very plastic or, you know, uh, how, how was your experience today? How are you today? It, it just, the company doesn't have the DNA to do customer care like a hotel concierge. So that's a risk that if you say, I want to offer that service, you can offer it, but you could be upsetting more customers than, than, ha than delighting. So yes, you have to be careful that if, if you know, you want to, uh, uh, offer something and you don't have the skill set, you have to find a way to do it really well or don't do it at all. Now, Alan, the next lens, I think, is one that really pushes us to be creative in our thinking about what we can offer, and it's the lens go the rental route. I think this one is one many people might think wouldn't apply to their organization until we realize that this lens is about how do we make a one-time transaction into a long-term engagement with our customer? So could you share, Alan, how do we go about making that pivot? Yeah, that's really hard. But many categories 
you know, first of all, younger consumers are more conscious of buying things just to have things. Uh, and from an environmental point of view, you're going to buy something and use it once. Not only is it an economic pain, it's also now it's going to take up space. And now, so the sharing economy is growing. But um, more and more categories are realizing that you don't have to own everything. And many, many consumers prefer not to own, particularly on So I'll give you a, a, a new example. You know, uh, if you go into my basement, you know, there's a good archaeological journey. And I have lots of Lego blocks and toys and things my kids long outgrown. And they're not, they're, they're waiting down there patiently. Um, but if you live in a small, I live in New York City as well. And you know, if you have a small apartment, you have a young child, you go to somebody's apartment in, in New York City, you know, and they have two young kids under six, it, you know, there, there, there's all sorts of stuff hanging around that the kids use for a year or six months, and it's really hard. And so um, this uh, company called Loop said, you know, I'm going to target new parents, and I'm going to rent stuff that they will need for a year or six months so they can use it. It's best in class. It's the safest bouncy seat. It's the safest high chair. It's the safest block toy. But when they're done after six months, we'll take it back, clean it, and send it to somebody else. So all of a sudden, you're renting something that for years people just assumed they needed to buy. And more and more categories, I think, are going to start changing. And so if you have a product that's really important, but you're not using it every day like a toothbrush, Think about are there different ownership models that might be really relevant to certain targets and offer them a rental option. I mean, when I the idea for this happened came to me a long time ago, it's not new in many cases, but during a during a storm, a tree fell over and I needed a, a chainsaw to get out of my driveway. And I I tried to go to the hardware store and said, Can I just borrow this for the day? Um, but I had to buy it, I had to learn how to use it, <laughs> and I you know, cut the tree down or cut the tree so I could get through the driveway. And then I put it in, in, in the basement, uh, and a year and a half went by, never used it. <laughs> Another storm, mm -hmm. I tried to turn it on, and it was it, it didn't start because it sat too long. With In other words, if I could have rented it, I would have paid you know, good money to rent it, have it work, and return it so that the next time I needed it, it would be in working condition. Then, So think about lots of categories, cooking stuff, um, kids' Uh, not quite clothing yet, but um, many, many things might, younger consumers might be open to renting it, not owning it. Okay, Alan, so we're now at lens number six, which is approach things as a broker. And here again, I think this is a lens that is not as apparent and really gets us to move beyond how we see things, because this one is about dealing with a two-side market, that we see two sides to a situation. So I think it'd be helpful here if you could explain what do you mean by seeing two sides of the same thing or a two-sided market? And how do we go about applying this lens? Well, this is an easy one to get in theory, uh, which I'll get to in a second, but a really hard one to execute. So, it, it, you know, Uber is a two-sided market. Early, you know, they, they found drivers <laughs> who had cars and people they needed to get places and they matched them. Airbnb found people that wanted to stay in a different type of hospitality experience, not a hotel with one room and a restaurant, but something more unique and interesting and Airbnb with. So lots of 
uh, dating apps sprung up for years now, you know, different types of groups connecting people. Now, the trick, when you listen to how some of the dating apps start uh, or how any of these things are, you have to have, on day one, you have to have the, the uh, a deep list of customers who want the product or service, and you have to have a deep list of, you know, um, um, suppliers who want to give it. So in dating, you know, when they started some of these dating things, the biggest challenge is how do you get enough people uh, signing up to meet somebody? And then how do you find people that, you know, match them up? So the theory is easy. It's just really hard to get that balance. And once you dig into how complex it seems like a really thing for Airbnb or Uber or any of these matching services, these brokers, it's really hard when, when they're you know, understanding how complex uh, Uber's operations are. So when there's a football game in a town, you know, they, they know that's coming up and they, they don't have to get more drivers available for, you know, four o'clock when the game ends. And so it's not just simply saying, hey, sign up here if you want to find people that are great uh, at doing something for you, TaskRabbit or whatever it is. You have to, TaskRabbit is another two-sided market. Um, you have to be a broker and manage buyers and sellers. Harder to do, but great businesses because there's no overhead. You're not buying like the taxi fleets, a lot of cars <laughs> and training a lot of drivers, um, but you're bringing two worlds together. So we have two more lenses that I want to explore with you here, Alan, especially this next one, which is explore virtual options. Now this lens is clearly one that most organizations are struggling with, with many people arguing that we need to do most things in person. But I love the personal story you share in this chapter about your personal trainer for how it explains how we should be using this lens. So I was wondering if you could share that here to help us better understand this particular lens. Yeah, I'll give you two quick examples. So this was a uh, a startup and uh, um you know, there's a lot of virtual training going on because of the pandemic and still lingering for people that got used to doing jumping jacks in their family room and not going to the gym. Uh, but, you know, it's all the basic same way. They watch you through, you know, your phone camera or computer camera. And if you are look like you're out of breath and you sound like you're out of breath and you look like you're doing something close to a jumping jack, they said, that's great, do 10 more. Um, but in some training, you know, how you do things matters a lot. Um, yoga, Pilates, other weight training. And so this startup company put a couple sensors on your arms, little bands you wear on your arms and your leg. And not only can they see you, they can really see, you know, if you're doing the movement correctly on their computer phone. So it's not just trying to squint and saying, did, did, did he really touch his toes there? I can't see it, the lighting. But so using so just making the using some technology to make the virtual more real, it's called Yoga Notch. Um, but there are many other businesses that are just taking the simple thing of virtual. And how can I change the experience? Um, when you used to get your car repaired, you went into a car dealership, and they said, "Well, you know, I'm sorry, Alan. You know, you need a blank, 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 and it's worn. You need a YXZ, and it's going to be four hundred dollars." And they would say, "That's the price." And you know, you can't see it. You don't know really what the person's talking about and all right, fix it. Uh, I guess I need a blank, blank, blank. Uh, I took a newer car a couple of years back, a year and a half, two years, uh, to its first service in the dealer. And I get a text saying, we've examined your car. Please look at the next video. Open the video. 
they're under the car. They're saying, look at, the, we're going to show you a brake lining here with a little camera. And here's the tire tread. And all of a sudden you're doing like a tour under your car in the motor and you're seeing it as they give you the voiceover and you believe, oh yeah, I, oh my goodness. You know, the, 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 I have ball tires. Uh, so just think about virtual things to, to solve problems, not so much for new worlds, like I think virtual training is a pretty new world, but for the old world <laughs> of, um, um, and even home repair, you know, uh, I've done some home repair and you call up and they said, well, did you put part A and part C and is it connected with screw D? And you go, oh my, And but some of the newer companies are saying, wait, just click on the website. Let me do a screen share with you, FaceTime. No, Alan, you've got part E and that's why it's not, in other words, all of a sudden they could be, you could have a, you could have a professional installer behind you telling you you've got the wrong part. Whereas before they'd say, well, we'll send you some instructions, read them and good luck. So everything you do can be enhanced uh, if you're virtual, but it's not always the ones you expect. And you have to keep it, you zoom out and say, how can I make this customer's life easier? Just sending them a little uh, instruction manual as to how to replace the uh, uh, drain may not be as good as sitting next to them on the computer and telling them they've got the wrong wrench and the wrong screw and they're turning it the wrong way. And I like this example you just shared about the garage, Alan, because I think it actually also reflects the last lens you describe in your book, the lens of getting close to the customer. Now, we just talked about this lens that looks at virtual options, which, again, I think some people might assume makes us move away from the client. But I think the example you just shared about the garage, and as we point out here in the, this part of your book, this lens is not just about proximity. But it goes back to what we were talking about with the second lens about personalizing the experience, where here we're looking to use empathy to better understand our customers so we can better meet their needs. So if we're combining these different elements that we've been talking about, which it seems like we are now, or at least a combination of them, how do we go about doing this out? Because it does seem like we're doing it a different approach because that's always been the goal of companies is to get close to the customer so you're better able to retain them. But how do we get close to the customer now with this understanding of these other lenses that we've been discussing? Yeah, I, I think, again, you have to have the expertise to get into it. And you know, uh, I cite in the book an early one in this area where when you used to go, uh, not only get contacts, so they talked about focusing and drilling now, but when you used to get glasses, you had to go to an optical store and there was a counter and inside the counter behind the glass, there were other frames and they would hand you, do you like this frame, like this frame? And that's the way it was until Warby Parker said, wouldn't it be more interesting if we put all the frames out, people could walk around, try them on themselves, you know, FaceTime with their friends, you know, show your friend and, you know, FaceTime your wife. And I just asking if I bought these glasses, are you going to, you know, leave me? Uh, these two, you know, too nerdy, uh, or you can do that with your key. And all of a sudden, they changed what was a, a distance, you know, the counter or the case, somebody handing it to, to all of a sudden, you were behind the counter, trying on all these glasses with your friends, telling you, don't buy those, buy those. So simple things like that um, um, are a way to get closer to the customer. Uh, I talk also way back when airlines are doing it better and better every day. It used to be when a flight was canceled uh, or delayed, you had to go, you know, and ask an agent who was overwhelmed by a hundred people saying, "Oh my God, I got to get to Chicago. What flight?" 
many years ago when I was working with Delta, we, they put big screens uh, by the gate. So all of a sudden you could see your flights cancel. If you're on this flight, go to this gate. Now, of course, it's on your phone. But even so, every day they're getting better and better at that, you know, getting closer to the customer by either tailoring it or customizing it more. So the, the other benefit is, it's going back to the beginning, you ever notice the Jerry Seinfeld thing? If if you are getting close to your customer, you are watching them more. And if you're watching them more or interfacing with them more as opposed to them buying it from a retailer and then only calling you when it breaks or maybe just when you need a new one, um, you are going to see opportunities to say, gee, I wonder why we don't do this or somebody else does this. So part of it is it forces you to uh, not just read a research report because lots of companies say we're customer centric and they look at 92% net promoter score, 42% in return. They look at data and data helps. It's important, but it doesn't necessarily, because people may not complain about things that they didn't think you could solve. Um, and that's you know probably how you know I, the the genius bar of course came across for other reasons that tied to the Best Buy reason, which you know no one knew how to sell Macintoshes. But now in the world of technology, if you're another tech company selling cell phones, um, you know Samsung has tried trucks, and if you have a problem with a cell phone, having a a place you can go and have somebody repair it while you stand there or tell you that it's not working because you've got you're not loading the app right, uh, is a huge advantage because Apple has you as a customer in front of them. In theory, not only are they solving problems, but they should be learning about you more and more every day. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Alan. And I love how what you've shared here really helps us to move past our understandings and perceptions of what we think our customers want, to see the terrain, to better anticipate where are the opportunities for us to meet and hopefully exceed customer expectations, if not also helping to gain clarity over what we should be focusing our efforts on to really develop that niche that becomes uniquely ours. So thanks for coming on my show and for the thoughtful conversation, Alan, and also for the little Seinfeld mentions you peppered in there. <laughs> uh, I, I hope you uh, enjoyed it and it was a pleasure being with you today. If you'd like to learn more about Alan and his book, Check out the show notes for this episode on our podcast page at tavernasir.com slash LBC. And if you're interested in learning more about my speaking work, please check out my speaking page on my website, where you can learn more about the topics I share in my keynotes and corporate training sessions, as well as what leaders in attendance had to say about the insights and ideas I shared at these events. Now, you may not know this, but Leadership Biz Cafe has recently been featured on a number of lists as being one of the top leadership podcasts. It's a recognition that I'm grateful to receive because this is a labor of love for me, and I really appreciate hearing that others are getting value and benefit from listening to this podcast. So with that in mind, if you enjoyed this episode or past episodes of my podcast, please do take a moment here to rate and review my show wherever you listen to podcasts as I would love to make sure we help as many people as we can in learning how they can improve the way they lead in their organization and create a workplace environment where everyone can succeed and thrive. I'm Tavin Nasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.